0: If you would, let me pray for just a moment as we attempt to begin. Father, be merciful to me, the sinner. Assist me to proclaim. And may all of us hear your word and not be unmoved by it. May we... Truly believe in the power of the Spirit to conform and shape sinful people more into the image of your Son. May we pause and reflect upon your goodness and grace toward us through the days of our travels with you. May we consider it a joy to know you. May we be encouraged to be gathered together. And may your word be that which guides us as a lamp. We pray in Jesus' name. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as you're turning over there to 2 Corinthians 5, we'll pick it up here in a minute, in verse 6. Well, maybe I'll just read it now. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I've got to be honest, um, I'm still recovering a bit in a good sort of way from the baptism service we just had. That was wonderful to see. It was wonderful to see, you know, even how the Lord put that together and that we have three people at three very different places in life. We have a young lady who's just now setting, attempting to set her course according to the word of God. We have a young man who is in the prime of his health and strength, and we get to see him now correcting his steps according to the ways of Christ. And then we have a guy who's my age, ancient, <laughs> uh, who is now turning his life over to the Lord and seeking to walk with him in newness of life. And what an incredible thing that is to see. What a glorious thing that is for us to to see the lights turn on for somebody, which has been much of the thrust of what's going on in the surrounding area of this text. That is to see the glory of Christ unveiled is, is what we long for in every person that we're witnessing to that we would share the gospel with. We want to see the lights come on. We want to see them go from being in opposition to Jesus to going, man, Jesus is awesome. Right, We want to see them glory in just knowing him and knowing that they can know a little bit about him, that they can draw near to him. is just profound. Why in the world would he want anything to do with me? And then you learn more and more. You learn your Old Testament stuff and you see the distance that is there between the holiness and greatness of God, the transcendence of God, and the sinfulness of humanity. You see that gap. And the more you you ponder that, the more you marvel at the fact that you can draw near. And the only reason you can draw near is because of Christ. What a wonderful thing this is to see. So I ask you in, in response somewhat to even seeing these three declare their faith and their desire to live for Christ, what is the ambition and the goal, the aim of your life? I know for myself as a young man, wandering around doing just about everything wrong you can imagine, pursuing every wrong trail, finding dead ends all over the place. I can tell you that for me, I had no clue what I was doing. I went to Lincoln Land because I was trying to get my parents to leave me alone. Then I went to art school because I heard, hey, you can make money pretty easily just by drawing stuff. I was like, dope, I'm there. You know, I can make some money doing that, but I had no real clue why I was doing it. Well, I guess money would be cool. I don't know. You know, I was just as happy pursuing a high in one field or another, whether that was drugs or, or women or whatever. I didn't care. Whatever it was, that, that scratches the itch right now. I'm going to go for that. But I had no real aim. And that's the essence of what it is in Ephesians 4 when Paul talks about the, the nature of being lost. I don't really know. Like, imagine someone, you're in the dark, if you've ever been caving or something like that, and you're in the total dark, and something pokes you from behind. You're like, oh, and you react to that, right? Or you see a light over there, and you're like, oh, I should go that way. And that's what it is to not know Christ, as the Word of God would declare it. You just follow the stimuli that are coming in like an amoeba, you know, a poke response, and that's it. No true ultimate aim that gets beyond the pale of this life and this existence, which was exactly Aiden's testimony. There is an eternal destiny for us. It is set in our hearts. We know that. We see that. So we have to ask ourselves. Everyone needs to ponder that question. What is the goal, the aim, the ambition of my life? Well, the problem with me using that as an initial propositional statement here that I want to drive to, is that our verse starts with therefore. That doesn't work its way to this direction. What therefore means, everybody knows this good question. Whenever you see the word therefore, you're supposed to ask? All right, both of you there. Thank you. Appreciate that. as arousing. Yeah. Um, what is it therefore? Uh, you're reading someone else's mail. Whenever you open Scripture, you're reading someone else's mail. And you're, tr- you're jumping into the middle of a conversation. And what you'll notice, if you have a New American Standard, it's, it's very obvious. The word therefore, you're jumping into a context. Verse 6, he says, therefore. 9, uh, 11, 16, 17, 20. And he goes on in chapter 6 doing the same thing. You go back in chapter 4, and he says in verse 16, therefore verse one of chapter four, therefore. So what you're seeing is you're jumping in the middle of a discussion. And one of the big problems that we have in Christianity in general is that we typically, you know, paraglide in or parachute in to one particular verse, go, I like that one, and then hop back out of there and just use that verse in any way that I want. But the problem is we're we're wedged within a context of a situation. And actually, if you're, Following these, therefore, through the text, in order to get back to his original place, where he's not building from something else, you have to get back in chapter two in verse 12, when he says, "Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me to, of the Lord or in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit." not finding Titus my brother, but lack, or taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So here what we have is the beginning of his story. If you want to get the full flow of the text and understand what's going on and not mess up what's going on, go all the way back to there and you start reading through. What you find is Paul has tremendous hope in the gospel, in God. And I would say if we look carefully enough at anything that we have hope in in this life, you will find it is a false hope. Unless it is in God. Unless it is in Christ. This is throughout Scripture. This is, you know, you, you can't trust in horses. You cannot trust in men. You can't trust in strength of arms. But you trust in the Lord. And that, that's throughout Scripture. But if you're paying attention yourself, you should see this too. Do you have a tremendous amount of hope in the stock market? I can give you some reasons not to. I, I, you can just look at my portfolio through the years and find a reason. I've put money in various areas. Me and some other people have talked about this. You know, it just, it just went the wrong way. I zigged when it zagged. I have a talent. You could just do the opposite of what I'm doing and make a lot of money probably. Uh, there's, do you have hope in the United States government? I mean, we can kind of chuckle at that now, but, I mean, 20 years ago, A lot of people expressed that Uh, they had a a ton of hope in that. Uh, This is there's so many things that we put our trust in our hope, and I remember so many times hearing people talk about America's the greatest nation of all time, greatest you know we have the greatest military and all that kind of stuff, and I've always cringe a little bit when I hear that because that's what every great empire before us thought too, and the world is full of their ruins. not trying to be anti-America or something like that. I'm trying to say any hope that we have that is not truly built upon Christ and his gospel is a false hope that will ultimately fail. Paul has tremendous hope that is overriding and overpower, it's just overly powerful because by the time it's been tested, it's been battle tested, because by the time you come to chapter four and you look at verse eight, he says, we've been afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Christ, dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, made visible in our bodies. Paul's not just talking. This isn't some guy who's got all the answers void of God. Everything is built upon what God has done in his life. And he he's, testifies to all that with the actions of his life. He's battle-tested. So his hope doesn't perish, even in the midst of being crushed, even in the midst of being perplexed, and all the other things that he brings up here. Hope in the midst of all of that. So, moving back to our text of of, uh, emphasis today in verse 6. It says, therefore, being always of good courage. Um, When I hear that, I think, really? Always of good courage? Um, If you think it through, there's a whole lot in life to be cowardly about cowardly being the opposite of courage, of course, you look at your own life and consider all the areas where you need to be courageous. You need to be courageous in every station. I think of C.S. Lewis's words on this. He says that courage is not simply one of the virtues that we ought to be pursuing. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. It's easy to talk. It's a whole lot different to walk. It's a whole lot different to act on those things. It's easy to give a good glowing testimony. It's a different thing entirely to carry it out day in and day out. You know, it takes courage to handle your money in a way that God tells you to. God tells you to give generously, to be sacrificial, to be hospitable, and on and on we can go about money. It takes courage to do that. Just in the Old Testament system, you understand tithing, to take 10% of whatever it is that you're earning and giving that to the Lord. That's an act of courage. The the Old Testament saints were told they needed to offer up the first fruits, the first of their harvest, some of the best stuff they were going to get. They were to offer that up to the Lord. That takes courage. To confront people when you don't want to deal with something, that takes courage. To stand up, oh, even to a daughter who wants to wear a dress that you don't approve of, Dad, that takes some courage. Courage. It gets down in all the details of your life. It takes courage to take the time out of your day and be alone with God because that's going to come at a sacrifice to something else. There is a testing point. There's a crossroads, a crux that you arrive at in every situation where you have to decide, am I going to boldly go forward trusting God with the result or am I going to go my own way that seems clean in my own sight. What am I going to do? Courage is needed all over the place, in every part, and every section of your life. And you might say, yeah, okay, cool. How? And how? How am I supposed to do that? I'm always asking that question when I'm reading through Scripture in particular because it asks of us huge things. And I think, yes, but how? Because by my nature... I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't think I'm some kind of hero that's going to charge into the flames on my own. Many of us are bold enough to imagine we would. I, when I was young, I did various dumb things, and I remember charging into certain situations that took courage. And I, I don't really think it was courage. I think it was stupidity. I don't think I knew what I was doing. I think I stepped into certain situations only because I didn't realize the ramifications of what could happen. Courage, rather, is to know the situation, to realize what could happen, and to walk into it anyway. I don't think I'm courageous in and of myself at all. I think I easily walk away from many situations where I should stand. So how am I going to do this? Well, let's go back here to verse 6. Being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, Paul, that doesn't help me. How does that help? You need to have good courage and, by the way, you're going to be absent from the Lord. What? You know, I can be pretty tough if Jesus is next to me. How about you? I mean, if Jesus is standing next to you, do you think you're going to struggle with, you know, Cheating on your taxes? Do you think if Jesus is standing next to you, you're going to struggle to have the courage to maybe give some money to someone that needs it or help someone out? Do you think you're going to struggle to, I don't know, cut an ear off like Peter if you got Jesus standing next to you? Well, no. But notice what happens to Peter as soon as Jesus is removed. Jesus says, don't do that, Peter. Heals the man. And then Peter just gone like a cockroach and the lights turn on, right? It's one thing to say um, or to be bold and courageous with Jesus standing next to you. It's a different thing when he's not there. And Paul's saying, look, he's not there. He's absent. You're absent from the Lord. When Jesus is not in the room with me, it kind of changes the discussion. Verse 6 feels a bit like Paul digresses. He makes a statement, then he kind of steps back. But verse 7 really hits the corrective, the reset. He says here in verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He's been talking about this in the preceding context. If you remember verse 16 through 18, he had just said, therefore we do not lose heart. We don't become cowardly. We don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Externally, everything you're seeing as you're aging up um, once you hit a certain age, is the crumbling process, right? I was just out in the hallway, and there's a picture on one of the, the things that tells you which way the rooms are, you know, the TVs, some, most of you have probably seen those. One of those pictures, I'm standing there teaching, doing one of these moves, like, uh, you know. And there's people in the foreground and all of that, and me and a couple of guys are talking. My wife walks up, and I said, yeah, that's an older picture. And they talked about, it. well, yeah, it does look a little bit older. And Priscilla goes, oh, you can tell how much older it is. Brian's beard is black. I was beside myself. No, not at all. Actually, I don't care. Uh, I don't like losing the hair. I don't mind if it goes gray. I just don't like going bald as much. I don't know what's, it's weird, isn't it, fellas? When you start losing the hair, you're like, do I just shave it? What do I do? You know, what's the process here? Anyway, point is, when you look in the mirror, you see decay. You see a falling apart. You see diminishing returns. Right? When you were young and you hit the weight room, you could see some results in a few weeks or you felt strong and all that. Now you hit the weight room and you go, oh man, that hurt. That was not the right kind of hurt. It doesn't feel right anymore because you're decaying. Paul, and Paul, of all people, is decaying. He subjected his body so much to the will of Christ that he is falling apart. The number of injuries that he lists for us later in a few chapters is tremendous. The kind of things he went through, I can't imagine that this guy could stand up literally straight. He had to be bent over from the injuries he went through and and the scarring and all of this stuff. Look, and when he looked at himself, Paul certainly wasn't like, I'm looking great today. Instead, what he's saying is visibly I see a decay. I see a crumbling process. But internally, I'm stronger than ever. Internally, I've seen what Christ is doing in my life. And you're seeing that Paul, as he's trusting in the Lord, is unbreakable. No matter how hard his enemies have tried. And we can have the same thing. Paul's a man just like us. How was Paul doing this? He was living by faith, not by sight. Verse 17, he gets into that. Verse 18, this is of chapter 4, explaining it further. But let me give you two reasons why you should walk around with an ever-present courage. Number one, because the Spirit, as our down payment, is with us. Number two, reason you should always be courageous, is because this faith walk that we travel on is a well-trod path. Yesterday, um, my daughters and I and our dog went hiking in the woods because we like to freeze. And we went hiking out there in the woods and all that stuff, and we came to an area where you could get down on Lake Springfield, and it's all iced. And um, Maya, she's not over there, right she's, you know, 60 pounds, and a little bitty eight-year-old, all that kind of stuff. She's like, Dad, can we go on the ice? And I said, hmm, well, I don't know. And then the dog just went flying over there on the ice and went running out on the lake and all that stuff. And Maya, who lays, weighs less than the dog was like, see, it's totally safe. And I was like, honey, your daddy weighs a little bit more than the pooch. I don't know about this. And I turned and I started talking to Eliana, the 12 year old over there, who's looking at me like, dad, don't say anything anyway. She is standing next to me, and I'm talking to her, and I turn back around, and Maya's already on the ice, and I was like, "Oh, so we're doing this, right? So we go down there. We start walking around on the ice, and I'm like, yeah, girls, stay back, and so I go out, and I start walking around on that ice. There has not been a living soul of any kind on this ice yet, and you could say no one has ever walked on that ice before in this particular day at this time. It was completely clean and pure. Nothing had ever been on that ice no footprints and then my dog to, 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 went running through there and I was like well the dog didn't die he looks fine and he's out there prancing around so I step out on the ice I'm like mm, all right and so then what do you do dad you start stomping on the ice on Lake Springfield when it's like sub 10 right so I'm stomping on the ice make sure my girls don't die I'm out there, and then the girls come over, and they start getting close to me. I'm like, back up. Why? Because it's untested. It hasn't been proven yet. It hasn't been fully tested. Now, the more I tested, the more I realized we've got no problem. So we went and frolicked on the ice for a little bit. We had fun. But when something is untested, you should have apprehension. Now, I ask you, is your faith walk untested? No, you have this entire book for you to lay out for you a path that we might have courage, ever-present courage. Whether you look at Gideon, whether you look at Noah, whether you, whoever you're looking at on that level, you go to the, the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews, right? Which we're going to get to in like 18 years when my dad gets through that sermon series when he gets there so much for a transition. Anyway, (laughs) you like that one. Okay. Anyway, you start looking at this path that you're going down. You haven't, this isn't untrod ice. This is an untested pathway. This is an ancient pathway that goes all the way back to Abel. It's been laid out for you that you might have ever-present courage in trial, in temptation, in your daily walk down to the the little things of life that I mentioned earlier. Courage, friends. Courage. In every station, in every position, courage. So we ought to, as it says in verse 8 when he moves over to that, we ought to have good courage. There is reason for courage, and it's not just, oh, what do the, they call it, a uh, leap of faith nonsense. It's not just a leap of faith idea. That is a leap into the dark without any kind of supporting system. No, this is, this is like doing uh, rappelling, if you've ever done that, where you jump off the side of a mountain, and you, you trust a rope to keep you safe as you go down it. You have a, a main line that you take, you have as you go down the side of a mountain when you repel, and you also have a belay line, someone that's going to catch you if you fall, if you're a new bee or whatever. So you've got a couple of ropes. This isn't an untested leap into the dark that we're asking you to jump into, that, that God asked you to jump into. Instead, he's shown you the way, he's given you the path, and he's shown you various people traveling down it. Are you going to do it? Is the question. So we are of good Courage. And the second, or actually the first reason, the one that I skipped over rather quickly, which is found in verse five of chapter five. He says, now he, God, who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. I said earlier, if Jesus was with me, I can be very bold. Well, God is telling us here, he is with you. And he's given you the evidence of it. I think in this day and age, many people in the church have looked for flashy external signs to validate faith. They have looked for some faith healer or something along that line. They've looked for some flashy thing, somebody who supposedly speaks in tongues or something, somebody who can heal people. Um... And all the while, we're undermining a more powerful thing that's going on in the midst of ourselves. There's an ongoing sanctification process that's conforming you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. And if you don't see that as miraculous, you're not viewing it with the eyes of God. I'm not what I was. I'm not good grief. I'm nowhere near what I need to be. But I'm not what I was 26 years ago when I came to Christ. When he found me there, man, I was a train wreck. About eight minutes from prison, in all types of trouble, lost, aimless, like I said earlier. I'm, I'm not that anymore. And it's not because, you know, I fu- suddenly found a work ethic. It's, it's not that kind of thing. My life is a testimony to what God is willing to do if you just listen to him. And again, I'm not arrived at anything. I'm not the, the the high plane of holiness, but the change that has happened day in and day out that I can barely see. I I gotta look back a little bit. I gotta rewind a little bit and remember what he's been doing through the years. And we gotta encourage one another with these things. You gotta look at your brothers and sisters, your your children parents. Uh, Grandparents, speak to your children, your adult children or your grandchildren. As you've seen them more conformed to the image of Christ, speak those things to them. Let them know what you're seeing. Encourage them in their faith. Remind them of what he's been doing in their life. The Spirit is mightily at work within us in a way that is more powerful than showing you some kind of sign. That internal work of the Spirit is ought to give us and embolden our ever-present courage. Stand up, men of God. Stand up and be counted. Have courage. You've seen his faithfulness throughout the generations of people that have trusted him, and you've seen what he's doing in your life. So stand up, be courageous. Back to verse 8. We are of good courage. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now I'm leaving out as I've been going through verse 6, 7 and 8, this kind of back and forth Paul has going with this this tension he has between living in this life in this body and then being at home with God. This text gets a little confusing as you're going through that, but it's because Paul is counteracting some of the teaching of the time. He's dealing with things going on and he's helping them see Of course, he would rather be at home with God. Of course, he'd rather be with the Father in full holiness, removed from the power and the presence of sin. He would long for that. At the same time, that's not where he's at right now. He's not seeking death. He's not wishing to die in some way. But he's trying to help us understand how is it that we are to live while we remain in this body. He's speaking of a tension that is all throughout Scripture for everyone who actually is going to live for God and his kingdom because forever God's people have been a people that are torn, that are pulled in two directions. It's demonstrated with language like calling us sojourners or pilgrims or aliens, strangers. Strangers. People who are not of this world, as Jesus says of us in John 17. Paul talks more extensively about this in Philippians chapter uh, 3. And the truth is, we'll never truly be at home in this world. And that's by God's design. We long for a place that we've never been. Years ago, uh, shoot, that was 20 years ago. I came back here to be the the youth pastor, and there was a group of young men, in particular, who man they were just like cold as ice with me. I could not break through to them at all. I had a hard time just getting them to talk. One of those was Jake Williams, which is hilarious because if you know Jake now, he's he's not a you know quiet fella anymore, is he? His parents are not. Yeah, so he was a really quiet guy back then, and I you know he'd just look at me. You know, and he's six eight or whatever he is, you know, and he just just stare at me. And, I man, I couldn't figure Jake out, and some others. David Christensen, well, no, he would talk, never mind. Uh, but several of these guys, man, I just couldn't sort them out. But what I did know was they got in their little nerd huddle, and they talked about Tolkien. Yep. They talked about Tolkien. And I was like, Lord of the Rings, really? And the movies were out at that time. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watched, you know, a couple of the movies, and I started, like, trying to talk to him, But I clearly wasn't in the club. Right? Because all I knew was the movies and like, oh, Tolkien would blah, blah. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Tolkien everything. Right? So then I was taking class over Lincoln actually at the time. And in between a class, I would go over to the library and I started reading Tolkien stuff. I started reading everything Tolkien. I could out nerd the nerds, man. I read every Tolkien book, even the, the, anyway, all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of books that were probably even shouldn't have been printed. I knew tons of things about Tolkien writing. And one of the weirdest things to me was that the elves, you know, they're like kind of angelic kind of creatures. The elves are always migrating. They're always leaving. Where are they going? They're going to the undying lands. Why are they doing it? Well, many of them don't even know why. They just feel the call of the sea. They feel this call, this pull to go. And I always thought that was weird. Like, why are they always going to be leaving, man? But as I've thought about that since those times, since those days of out-nerding the nerds, I understand that a lot more. I used to not understand how they, these elves in Tolkien's writings could always be called away by the sea. I, I'm not called at all by the ocean. I don't know, like the ocean. I'm not a big fan of that. But what I am called to is something I have, a land I've not seen yet. Because the one I love is there. The God that I have come to adore and be surprised by and amazed by. The one I sing songs about. The God who governs my life and and shines light upon my way. He is there. I don't long for heaven so much as I long for the person of God. To be near him, to know him, to have him wipe away every tear, to know him in that sense is always calling me home. So then naturally, verse 9, I have it as my ambition, whether at home or absent, whether here in this life or in the next, my ambition is to be pleasing to him. Our ambition here is this idea of setting our sight upon something. Uh, so much of this text, which I don't know that I've done a good enough job for you on, is setting our sights upon the unseen. When he's talking about having our ambition to be pleasing to him, the, the word here used in Greek takes us back really to chapter 4 verse 18 when he talks about we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen it's connecting back to this this is an interconnected text trying to help us see that the only things worth living for are God and his glory he's trying to connect us and to, to give us the right perspective on life to not cling so tightly to this life and these things, but to learn to let go and to live for his name and his glory. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, verse 9, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And then he incentivizes it further in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, repaid for his deeds In the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is reserved for believers in Christ. So there is no, as we would understand the word, bad. This word might be better understood as worthless. This goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he talks about the nature of the things that we are building on the structure. Building up upon the foundation of the gospel. He's trying to incentivize us to live soberly in this life, to live intentionally, to not just be chasing things hither and yon, but to have a goal and an ambition to please the Lord in whatever it is we set our hand to. This clarifies life for us. Paul frequently tries to get his listeners, his hearers to clarify because our world is full of distractions. And I'm just as victim to all this as everyone else. We are so distracted and so pulled here and there. It's so easy to lose sight. This text would remind us, make it your ambition to please the Lord in whatever you set your hand to. Let me pray. Our Lord, we thank you for our time together. Lord, may we truly seek to please you with our lives. May we make it our goal in all ways to please you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.